So, shall we ask questions, or is that what you want to do? Yeah. Oh, okay. We've got an agenda. Hands Hello. up everywhere. Okay, Mahara. I wanted to ask you if you could tell us what your favorite prayer to Prabhupada was, and Sridhar Maharaj, and also what is the way, a prayer that you say when you approach your japa, and what kind of prayers do you say, or what kind of, I guess, you know, prayers, like, during your day when you get reversals and good things happen. Wow. <laughs> well, there's different kinds of prayers, I, I think, and um, and I think they also fall into two categories, basically, uh, and that is prayers relative to Sadhana Bhakti and prayers relative to Baba Bhakti, and the, the former would be characterized more by submission, prayers that uh, seek to be, uh, but through which one seeks to be more submissive, surrendered and faithful and so forth, with emphasis on shraddha and, and sharanagati, the cultivation of humility and so forth, and, and self-resignation. And they include the aspirations to be more tolerant and, and, and so forth. And then um, then there are prayers in Bhava Bhakti that are characterized by longing, longing for an ideal that has come into, into view. And generally those are not talked about as much or revealed. There are some nice instances in which we find that happening in Bhakti Vinod writing, for example. Uh, we find it in Prabhupada's poem that I like very much. So, if I may, with regard to talking about Bhava Bhakti, I would prefer to talk about their their prayers. And so, you know, whatever my own situation is, aside, I like Prabhupada's prayer <laughs> on the boat because uh, I find, actually, to be, it's probably my favorite prayer as far as a composed prayer by a predecessor acharya. So that's another kind of division of prayers. There may be self-composed prayers, and then there may be there are prayers that have already been offered. The prayers in the Bhagavatam, the prayers of Lord Shiva, the prayers of Brahma, prayers of Indra, and so on and so forth, and others. And these are powerful prayers to commit to memory and to and and recite. They have the power of those devotees' aspirations. And so, in the context of praying ourselves, it's useful to find favorite prayers of other devotees that have been offered, and we they're enshrined in the sacred text. We assume they've been accepted and heard and, and so forth, and uh, Krishna's making arrangement for them to be broadcast and shared around and so forth. So, uh, And then there's our own you know, private uh, compositions and so forth. So, amongst those types of prayers, Prabhupada's prayer on the boat was so, is so nice because it includes within it both ends of the spectrum of prayers for submission and saranagati and prayers for, for longing. And also, of course, the prayer brings out the very essence of, uh, of Gaudi Vaishnavism. And then that the prayer was fulfilled in no short uh, measure, at least with regard to the external 
aspiration gives us evidence that it was fulfilled with regard to the internal aspiration. And so the prayer I'm talking about where Prabhupada prays to to his companion, he says, it's a prayer to the lotus feet of Lord Krishna, I think he entitled it, and he says, so today I wrote a prayer to my my companion, Krishna, aboard the boat, the Jaladuta, that he was making his way across the Atlantic on. And he gives a nice kind of reasoning there. He appeals to Krishna as, as my friend, my brother, and he, he tells him that if you have get uh, the blessings of Radharani, then your, your life's going to become successful, basically. And that's a very high idea. That's Gaudiya Vaishnavism, kind of in a, in a nutshell. He does it in such a charming way. It's almost uh, as if he's uh, bargaining with him. Well, he is bargaining with him, and he, and he, and he knows you know, his weak, weakness. And, uh, and so he says, well, if Radharani's pleased with you, then you know, your life's going to be successful. This is a fact, he says. He uses the word dhruva. Dhruva means like fixed, like the pole star. It's called dhruva loka. And others are orbiting around it. It stays in one place is the idea of the Vedic cosmology. So this is like fixed forever. Like this is a, this will never change. This is the real inside truth about you, that your life being happy, being successful, is dependent upon Radharani being pleased with you. So you can imagine how that would get, could get Krishna's attention. And, uh, and then he goes on to say, and so then he shifts, so to speak, and my Guru Maharaj has ordered me, you know, the great Bhakti Siddhanta who preached, wanted to preach Chaitanya's Mahaprabhu's mission all over the world and so forth. He wanted me to come to the West and preach this kind of idea. And of course, Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasthi Thakur more or less revealed to his disciples that he envisioned himself as a maidservant of, of Radha by the name Nayanamani Manjari in the service of Gorkishwardas Babaji and, uh, and Bhakti Vinod, Kamal Manjari. So that's the camp of Radha. So to do the bidding of his guru, who's representing the camp of Radha, which was to go and preach in the Western world, he asks Krishna for the power to do so, because then Radharani, represented by his Gurudev, will be pleased, and if Radharani is pleased, then Krishna, your life will be perfect. So I think that you should do this. You should give me the power to effectively carry out the order of my Gurudev and preach in the Western world. It's just very charming. And when he's praying for that empowerment and so forth, you study the prayers on that side of the... Of the uh, two ends of the spectrum that that his prayer includes both the submission and the longing, then you'll find that he's emptying himself out. He's aspiring to be uh, submissive and just the order carrier of his his Gurudev and have no other desire and so forth and and so on. So it's, a, it's the ideal of Sharanagati. And when Sharanagati is really fully in place, then this kind of longing for entrance into the into the leela, well, it, it makes more sense. I mean, longing to enter there makes sense at any time, but it makes more sense if you're surrendered because that's kind of the foundation of the whole place. Just like we find that 
during the Govardhan Leela, it was shown that the whole of Vrindavan is uh, surrendered to Krishna and no other god. This is Sharanagati. Sarva dharman prityaja mamekam sharanam praja. Krishna says at the end of the Gita. Sarva dharman prityaja means give up any worship of any other gods or goddesses, you know, who we're concerned about in the karma marga or in, in, in the dharma marg in, in religious life. Linda will be pleased with us and we'll do this yagya or this one, that one and so forth. So give all that up. And so there they, they did that, right? And they, Krishna told them, don't worry about Indra. Forget about his yagya. Make a feast. Feed everybody, even the, the animals and everything except Indra, you know. You know, except for him, you know, everybody but him. You know. So he had been, as I've said before, traumatized by this Indra Yogi in his youth during the Damodar Leela because it was during that time that Mother Yashoda put him down and went to tend to the milk instead and uh, because she was home alone and everyone was out preparing for the Indra Yogi. So this was going on year after year. So when he became of age at seven, he figured it all out and wanted to work that out, so to speak. And so, anyway, that time, everybody in Vrindavan came under the umbrella of the Govardhan Hill held by Krishna. They all took shelter of Krishna, forgot about Indra. So this is an example of Sharanagati, and it shows that, in a sense, that the, the underlying stage in which the drama of Krishna Leela is performed in Vrindavan is Sharanagati. It may not look as such, when Radharani is arguing with Krishna or uh, his friends are wrestling him to the ground or Mother Yasoda is tying him up and so forth. They don't look like very surrendered people. They seem to be telling him what to do. But um, this Leela, one, one aspect of it is to, is to show to us, actually they're all they're depending on him. Well, he's their God. He's their everything. They're surrendered unto him. And as much as that is in place, then this, as I say, longing comes out and that possibility of interacting with him in love, which takes those types of forms and expresses itself in that way. I mean, lovers quarrel and, you know, you don't want to get in the middle of that because you'll be the one to lose out, you know. So Radharani is quarreling with Krishna, but we shouldn't think that she doesn't, you know, embody the highest love for him. So in the prayer we find... Both sides, this longing, the, 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 the submission and the, the prayer for that and the cultivation of that. And then he comes out on the other end with a longing to enter into the cowherd leela of Krishna, to go with him in the morning through all of the different forests of Kotavani Chuti Chuti, Banikai, Lutaputi, Sedin, Kobehobe Mohar. Tomara Milani Bhai, Abarshe Shukapai, Gochrani Guridin Por. So it's a very, uh, it's like very kind of startling. You know, he, and this is written in, in, you know, you asked me about my private prayers. They're not usually something that anyone is too, one's a little reticent to, to speak about their private prayers. And Prabhupada wrote this as a private prayer. That's significant. He didn't write it as something to be published. And uh, I mean, he had no, uh, you know, idea there was going to be a book, Bhakti Vedanta book trust and they'd publish and everything he would say and, uh, you know, record every, um, you know, if he burped, uh, you know, practically and uh, and teach people that's the way to burp, you know, we had so much affection for him and so much <laughs> faith in him and everything that he said that we re responded in that way and, and 
course, Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur is said to have said, and I think Prabhupada told us this, that about himself that he had said once, if he writes anything on scratch paper, it should be published about Prabhupada, because he, he had seen some things that Prabhupada had written, apparently. Prabhupada wrote some, at least some nice Vyasa Puja offerings that had been published in the Harmonist of, of Bhakti Siddhanta and so forth. So, at any rate, there he, it's really a private prayer, prayer to my friend, Lord Krishna, and and then he has this aspiration that when, that when this preaching is finished, uh, Sharanagati is in place, and uh, with, by the grace, of, by your power, and so forth, I've done the work of my Gurudev, then I want to enter there in this, in this way. And it's the way he wants to enter corresponds with how he's talking to Krishna in the beginning of the prayer also, like a friend who was, who was involved in the romantic affairs of Krishna and, and consults him, gives him advice, and we can find this in Suval, Madhumangal, and uh, Ujwal, and others. They have that kind of relationship with Krishna. So, it's a very beautiful prayer. So, it's that's kind of my favorite prayer. And as I say, it covers both sides of the for us: Sharanagati, the, the, the faith, the, 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 the how to pray in Sadhana Bhakti, and how to pray in. In Bhav Bhakti, and obviously there's some overlapping in each of these. There's going to be some, you know, longing in in, in Sadhana Bhakti, and and then there's going to be some some prayers that you'll find of Bhava Bhakti with regard to surrender to some extent. But that's the basic kind of emphasis. Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasthakura used to like to say, first deserve, then desire." So it means first surrender, then desire to go there, because that's the basis of going there. Then again, from the very beginning, we should have a desire to go there, otherwise why would we surrender? So, Prabhupada was once asked by Giriraj Maharaj, he told me that uh, why he gave the Krishna book, when he keeps saying, you know, got to read the first nine cantos before you read the tenth canto, and one of the first books he gave was the Krishna book. And Prabhupada said something like to give them everybody a taste of, you know, what's to come. So without some taste and some aspiration, some idea, this this is my prospect, intimacy with uh, with uh, with Bhagavan Sri Krishna, then what will be the impetus to surrender. So a little aspiration and then focus that aspiration in a way that's meaningful. You know, if you like, as I said before, if you look at the map in the mall and you want to go here and it says then you are here, you know, so you look, but you got to look in. It's okay, I'm going to go turn here, and then you, know, you start. You go, okay, that's where I want to go. Got it, you know. And then you start looking over here. You know, where's the next turn? Where you, know, you don't just keep looking over there, which you know, some people try to do that, and it's ineffective, and and they end up going backwards. So you don't want to do that. So, so um, these are some thoughts in general about uh, prayer. I want to say also, that prayer is very. Powerful because it's it's hard not to pay attention when you're praying. It seems almost impossible. <laughs> Probably just to say, just say chanting Hare Krishna is the best prayer, but then people do not always see it like that, you know. And they do not always pay attention. But if you f- fashion a prayer, you know, from your own heart and your own composition and so forth, it really speaks accurately about yourself. The general format is something like this for prayer, for composition. Glorify Bhagwan. Something about you, O Krishna, you are the be all and end all, you know. Without you, Mahaprabhu, without your descent, where would we be? Who would who would have the opportunity to to know about and enter 
Krishna Leela and so forth, some glorification of the deity whom you're approaching. And then you you can you take examples from others who so many nice prayers glorifying the deity that you're approaching, and you fashion a prayer accordingly. It should be appropriate, welcome, in terms of Siddhanta and, and so forth, and uh, and because we know, for example, that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu would it's not that he would accept just any prayer. Srup Damodar was carefully screening anyone who came and offered prayers, wrote prayers, poems, and so forth, and in glorification of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was not just for anybody, everybody come and say something, anybody get to him. So there's a there's a screen there. There's a somebody is going through. Sarupadamada was his secretary, and he wanted to see two things: that the prayer was appropriate in terms of Siddhanta, Tattva, and two that it was appropriate in terms of Rasa or Bhava. There was no conflicting mellows and and so on. And and there's a history there of him rejecting prayers of devotees as well. So. You want to make sure your prayers going to get there. You have to take these things into consideration. So there should be, as I say, some glorification of the deity, and it should be correct according to tattva and and according to uh, the uh, parameters of rasa. And then after the glorification of the deity, then there's the stating of one's own position. I'm nowhere, no one, whatever. You know, I'm the most fallen, or I'm not the most anything, or something. One states one's own position, the neediness in the, in the case of sadhana bhakti, for sharanagati, for surrender, and so forth. Inabilities in that type of prayer, distractions, and uh, and so on. And then you then you state the whatever it is that you what you want. Of course, what you want will have something to do with how close it comes to the heart of Krishna also, how much it's concerned with what, with what he wants. And so we should try to want pure bhakti, and we could want things in relation to pure bhakti that will help me in my bhakti in terms of making it unalloyed, pure. So this is kind of the general uh, format. That doesn't mean to say that you can't just, you know, say, oh, Krishna, please help me, or <laughs> something like that at, at times, and I'm sure devotees do that, but this is a more kind of thought-out uh, consideration of how to engage in vandanam, which is one of the angas of, of Vishnu Bhakti. And so, for myself, as I say, I really like that prayer probably because it includes both sides, the, the longing of Bhav Bhakti exemplary of that. And you see those kind of prayers, they become very specific, very focused. Rag Bhakti is a very, very specific uh, affair. So um, he's disclosed some details there. It's, it's very, uh, to me, it's like, what a, wow, a find, you know, you found. This is what you love, loving exchange to have, to have the, a, a sadhu reveal his heart to you. So he's revealed his heart, his inner aspirations there, and it's been found, and he knew he found it, and you know, it was put to song, and Agnidev was telling me that he was in Los Angeles when Prabhupada came, one time I wasn't there that day, and uh, as I spent a number of years there in, in Los Angeles, and then, you know, 
much of the time when Prabhupada was there, I was there in the Watsaka facilities there on Watsaka. But um, I wasn't there this time, and Prabhupada came, and he, he was greeted by the devotees and sat down, and then they sang that song for Prabhupada, his own song. I mean, he was quite pleased to hear that that song. So at any rate, um, that's uh, my uh, my favorite prayer, and, and it just happened to be written by Prabhupada too. So he seemed to have some favorite prayers as well. One he liked seemed to like very much was the prayer of um, Raghunath Das Goswami, speaking how Sanatana Prabhu had dragged him out and made him surrender and give up worldly life and so forth. He he cited that on the occasion of the disappearance of Keshav Maharaj and wrote it in, a, in his glorification of him. It's, uh, and on other occasions as well, I believe, that uh, made his appearance. So I have to think perhaps we could come up with some other favorite prayers of Prabhupada by the Purvacharyas, but that one sticks out in my mind. So for me, that's a nice example of a prayer. Otherwise... Um, didn't he mix that with another prayer? Yeah, actually he did. What was, do you know? I forget the other one. At that on that occasion, I think he did. I'd have to look and, and see the two lines where... That new book, I just read it. That's why it's, it's in, in my mind. Marta <coughs> Marita gave me a copy. What did I say? Uh-huh, yeah. I'd have to look, but yeah, I think he did on that, on that occasion, yeah. I, yeah. Was, I mean, it was like, I never knew, well, that's, you can compose your prayers by taking lines from mm-hmm, other prayers. Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> See, I was like, well, that's, that's cool. Mm-hmm, yeah. You know, I yeah. can take this prayer and that prayer, and Prabhupada, that's the way Prabhupada composed that prayer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that book, that's, that's what I think. It's in his Paris Dication Well, that's, it starts with the Varagya Vigil, is that the one? Hmm, yes, sir. Varagya Vigil Nidhi Bhakti Yoga This is actually here, this Varagya Vigil Nidhi Bhakti Yoga from Sarvam prayer. Varagya Vidya Nidhi Bhakti Yoga Apayayam Mam Anubhipsamandham Shikeshava Bhakti Pragyana Nama Kripambudayasthamahamprapatye I was completely blind and unwilling to drink the medicine of Krishna consciousness which is endowed with knowledge of transcendental detachment for this material world but my Garbhadar Bhakti Pragyana Keshavmaraj forced him to me drink this medicine. He showed this favor upon me because he's an ocean of mercy. I have my respectful obeisances unto him. Here's the prayer of Sanatana Goswami. He's kind of combined them, something from Sanatana Goswami's prayer and Sarvabhoma Bhatta charges. So Sanatana Goswami, Vairagya Yuga Bhakti, Rasam Prayatnaya Apayaya Mam Anubhipsamandham Kripambudaya Paradukaduki Sanatanam Tam Prabhum Ashrayami. I was blind, Raghunath Das Goswami says, uh, not Sanatana Goswami's prayer, but Raghunath Das in glorification of Sanatana Goswami. I was blind and unwilling to drink the nectar of bhakti endowed with renunciation, but Sanatana Goswami, out of his causeless mercy, made me drink it, even though I was otherwise unable to do so. Therefore, he's an ocean of mercy. He's very compassionate to fallen souls like me, and thus it's my duty to offer 
my respectful obeisances onto his lotus feet. Um, with regard to uh, reversals and so forth, there's a lot of those in life. I tend just to, to think of Prabhupada's life uh, on occasions like that and all the reversals that he had, especially in India before coming to America. They were quite a lot of reversals and obstacles to his being able to get facility even to fulfill as he saw the order of Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasati Thakur. So I tend to just reflect on, on that and get uh, you know, strength from that. I know I haven't answered all your questions there in detail, but uh, they were rather private. Anyway, that's something about Vandanam. I think that uh, is useful and. And as far as composing prayers and so forth, it's not, you brought up, uh, Bill's brought up a good point. It's a good way to start. You know, you, I kind of indicated that as well. You, you find some appropriate way in terms of tattva and siddhanta to glorify the deity with whom you're approaching, make that part of your prayer. And many great devotees have also stated their own positions nicely. And we may be able to identify with those and any uncertainty or own aspiration. And uh, it'll have some power, or you learn other, other devotees' prayers and recite them. That'll definitely get Bhagwan's attention. Anything else along those lines? You're a very prayerful type, you do a lot of fun to them. Yeah, it's one of my favorite services, actually. Mm-hmm. I know, it's. Um because it's so personal and it's uh, it's just kind of like pouring yeah. your heart out. I mean, um, yeah, that's why I say it's hard not to pay attention while while praying. And also, when you go to pray, usually whatever obstacles may be there, they come to the fore of your mind. Usually, it's pretty clear. So it's a good mm-hmm. good exercise. Yes. Just, well, just how do you approach your japa? Is that right to ask that one? Japa. <laughs> well, um, I think you want to approach your japa <laughs> from a point of um, what may be useful, most useful for you, is to think of it in terms of, um, in relation to sharanagati and um, like kind of mananam, kind of the uh, contemplation of the significance, the efficacy of chanting. The idea is to absorb the mind, so if you can't just chant and hear without some noise and so forth, then it's maybe useful to pray at the same time, or you may pray before chanting. But I think this kind of prayer for Sharanagati and, and, and contemplation, I want to say, of the significance of the name about which so many things have been said. I used to chant Japa and go uh, through... Shikshastakam at the same time. And I had a way of going through the Shikshastakam and um, remembering it and thinking of it, understanding it in relation to different stages of bhakti. There's a nice um, example of that in Bhakti Vinod Thakur's Bhajan Rahasyam. He used Shikshastakam as a prayer to go uh, kind of in conjunction with the chanting 
of the Hare Krishna mantra. Bhajan Rahasi, have you seen it? He looked at that anyway as a meditation on the holy, on the holy name. So that may be useful to study that. I, I used There's to. There's also one I think in Satchidananda. Suppose you're remembering is about uh, Govinda Das. Like Govinda Das, is that the right name? I haven't seen Satchidananda's yeah, book. So anyway, it was about. But I had a question in regards to what she just said. Maybe you could explain a little bit deeper. I didn't quite pick up. I pick up the fact that in some of Sridhar Maharaj's writings, he talks about there should be no demand during Japa. Is that proper? Yeah, it it means that you don't want to get anything. You know, it's just like Prabhupada would say. Well, if Krishna want, he gave us the permission to pray in his final days. If Krishna wants to keep him here, you know, for some service, please keep him here. But no. He didn't want to. Please keep me here. You know, he wouldn't. He wouldn't say that himself. If you want me to, then I'll. You know, something so, like that. So in prayerful, I mean, it's no agenda. To me in what Sridhar said that there's no demand, meaning that there's no prayfulness when you rage. When you, I mean, you, like you said, you can use prayer to get closer to Java, but at a certain point, it's just. There's no demand. There's no request. Well, I think really is what he right or not? not really no. Okay. Uh, what he was referring to is no, no request other than what the holy name is ultimately about, what the prayojan is, and so forth and so on. No separate demand. You know that uh, no business, no trading, as Prahlad said, nasabritisabaibanik. Don't be a merchant. Be a servant. So a merchant says, you know, hey, I'll do this, and and you give me that, and you make a deal. Something, no trading, something like that. But uh, so no agenda. Put me on your agenda. Something I want to be on your agenda. Now, when the chanting becomes more developed, you do have an agenda, but it's to serve Krishna in a particular way, and so forth. And it's well deserved that aspiration has come. One passes through the full meaning of, of Sharanagati and so forth and it comes out on the other side as aspiration in a particular way like Prabhupada's praying there, you know, then you become situated in your cowherd Leela and so forth and so on. And so that will be an aspiration that will be carried with the devotee in the context of, of chanting. And then the chanting will take on a meaning in relation to that aspiration. It's like you can find translations, if you will, of the Hare Krishna mantra from Raghunath Das Goswami, Gopal Guru Goswami, I, I think maybe Jiva Goswami also, and um, they all, they're all in Madhuri Rasa, they're all in relation to, uh, it's their, their, uh, their meditation on the Leela with each name, they're meditating on an aspect of the Leela and so forth, so it's it's an example of the fact that Leela is contained within the name and they're drawing it out. Even their prayers or their commentaries, it's hardly a commentary, it's kind of an outpouring, somewhat a little bit abstract. It's, it's kind of a, in a kind of a um, condensed kind of forms. I guess some of you have seen such things, but 
will take on that type of a shape and it will it will correspond even with the one's aspiration in, in relation to the divine couple and so forth. So no agenda, no what do you say, no um no demand. It means I'm yours, you know. Then it will become your mine. That's a higher thing. First it'll be I'm yours. So I do as you your bidding, whatever you want, whatever your agenda is, I want to be on that. And once that's in place, then it comes, goes around full circle to the other side, where the Brajbasis, they think he's ours. Mamata, it's called. It's a characteristic of Prem, a sense of minus, that, which is very practical, because our identity is based on our attachments. As I've many times said, our sense of I is determined by our, what we think is mine, because nothing is ours. Our sense of I is here today and gone tomorrow. But similarly, on the other side, as we identify with Krishna, eventually from attachment to bhakti comes attachment to Krishna himself, the object of bhakti, as that intensifies so that that forms an identity. So that he's mine, uh, in a general sense, is what the, how the Brajbasis feel. He's, he's a Brajbasin, and we are too. He's ours, he's mine, he belongs to me. And that corresponds with a particular identity. So, what else? Yes? It taught me a lot about trying to harmonize things and, you know, from what Dipanacharya say. And, and um, that's been really good, in, you know, for my development. And you know, I was reading in the Jaya Dharma the kind of the description of the fall of the Jiva. Do you, do you remember that part where he... I read it. And in there, he, you know, he talks about the different souls that Baladev and Goloka and Sankarshan, Vaikuntha, and then he talks about Mahavishnu and the souls. He says they come into a borderline space, and I'm thinking probably like the Viraja River. I'm not sure what, but anyway, they're they're in a place where they're between the spiritual and the material world, they can see both. So thinking that they're pure souls when they come from Mahavishnu, so pure soul means Krishna, you're Krishna conscious at that moment, coming to, you know, if you're not, haven't been contaminated yet. No, no. No, you're not. Okay. Not pure. Can you? The Mahavishnu is not, uh, has no beginning in time. Right, so his lila has no beginning. You have to think of it like a circle. A line has a beginning. Linear time, but scriptural description of time is is cyclical. So, a circle has has is, has no beginning. The logic in nyaya is given. Bija briksha nyaya. Bija briksha nyaya means nyaya means logic. So. It's the logic of the seed and the tree. So which came first, the seed or the tree? It's a, you know, Zen koan. Which came first, the seed or the tree? It's a way of drawing an example from our experience to help us conceptualize something that is a stretch for us to conceptualize, that being something having no beginning. I mean, we can 
talk about God having no beginning, and maybe it's a little easier to think about that. But when we talk about the, the world, it's often talked about as creation, and we see things come, and we see things go, and and so forth. In Nyaya also there's the idea that nothing comes out of nothing. And, and this is incorporated into Vedanta. Elements of Sankhya are incorporated into the Bhagavatam, elements of Nyaya are, and so forth, but it's its own philosophy at the same time. The idea is nothing, is, nothing comes out of nothing. So whatever exists in terms of manifesting has a prior non-existent existence. It's called Pragabhav or something like that. It's rather, rather complex, but they've gone at it quite a bit to explain the concept. And so that has to do with beginningless, the concept of beginninglessness. But as it's described beautifully and poetically in the Bhagavatam, the world is the exhalation of the breath of the Mahavishnu. So Mahavishnu is always existing, you know, and he's always breathing, so the world is always coming out. And he's inhaling, it's always going back, so it's going in cycles. It has beginnings, but it has no beginning. It begins, and then it winds up, and it begins again, and there's no beginning to that, those cycles. And so it's the, it's the Leela of Mahavishnu, and he is the one, then, that becomes many. That's on one level. When he studied the Upanishads, he says, Eko Bahu Sham, the one became many. You take it to a higher level, one became many. Krishna became Radha. And with the expansion of, from Krishna as Radha came the whole Leela and so forth. And, uh, and so on. But those are not moments in time. Right. We're limited by language and, yes. and even linear thought to have to talk about it like that, but it shouldn't, we should try to think it's not confined to such, and those are only limited ways of explaining something about transcendence with the help of material logic. To impose material logic on transcendental subject matters is uh, inappropriate. So, those souls in Mahavishnu, the bit Mahavishnu becomes many, means he's a source of, of the certain type of Jeev Shakti, for the area of his jurisdiction and the Maya Shakti. The combination of the Jeev Shakti and the Maya Shakti makes up the world. And what causes their individuality, materially speaking, is the karma. And so when the Vishnu becomes many, the many Buddha Jeeves, conditioned souls, they come back and they face their karma. And they develop individuality from a condition within Mahavishnu that's more homogeneous than it is heterogeneous. It's called susupti. That susupti, deep sleep, is compared to Brahman realization, which would be pure in, in, in terms of you're talking about there being pure. But it's not pure because the karma has not been paid off or, or the debt has not been paid. The ignorance, I should say, is not removed. You see, Karma is ignorance. That's the root of karma. It's ignorance. Ignorance has no beginning, but ignorance can come to an end. It may be a little bit better, easy to understand when we explain it like that. Karma has no beginning. Karma is rooted in ignorance. Ignorance has no beginning. 
So the jivas in Mahavishnu, they are not, that ignorance isn't over. It's just like you go to sleep at night and, and, and everything goes away, but it comes back because it's, hey, you haven't finished your business. When you wake up, it's still there. You know, you, you got in a, you know, you went to, you know, you, you did something as a kid and bad thing happened. You go to sleep and kind of hoping it's not going to be there when you wake up, you know, but it is. And so, so that karma comes and then causes the individuality, the jivas in the world goes on and stuff. So they're not, they're not pure, not purely Krishna conscious. And that is all anadi. Beginningless. The, the way they just it's described in there is that some of the souls they immediately go back to they immediately go to the spiritual world and it said that some souls they become because they're so close to material energy they become they become contaminated by the material energy. Well, Bhakti Vinod says there that they 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 have a general view of the of the upper worlds and lower worlds. So it kind of sounds like I mean that's why I guess it sounded like you could harmonize it because the way he described it is that they lack chit bala, he said, which is spiritual strength and that's why they, they get covered. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas many of those souls go directly back. They don't get involved. They just Krishna, they want to be there, and then another soul's that thing too. Yeah, well, I think that uh, you have to, you know, take into consideration that that particular explanation of Bhaktivinoda Thakur is creative in comparison to how the Goswamis have explained the phenomenon. And one of the purposes, primary purpose of explaining the world and the problem of our bondage is to do away with the tendency in people to find fault in God for creating a world that's of suffering or to give up on God because how could a good God create, you know, evil and so forth. This is a perennial theological question. Everybody tries to answer it. So the purpose of it going into an explanation of that is often, for the most part, to help people in such a way as if they don't fall into that kind of thinking. And so Bhakti Vinod Thakur explains it in such a way that it appears that the jiva has some responsibility there and he has some choice that it makes and so forth. It's kind of better than saying, you know, he was dancing with Krishna and decided to give it up, you know, got bored or something like that, you know, which doesn't really make a lot of sense given the nature of the ideal, the prayogen and its finality and, you know, going there will never returns and so forth. So, but it, it, the problem, if you will, as I see it in, in comparison to a more, maybe an, an earlier explanation of the Goswamis that wasn't taking into consideration modern thought and, and so forth and so on, where people were more readily just, it wasn't a big thing to acknowledge that that the world is beginningless, karma is beginningless, um, as it is, you know, more so today. So the, the problem, the problem is that if you have a partial view of the material world and a partial view of the upper world, how can you make an informed choice based on partial information? So someone would still say, "Well, he only got partial information." And then they made the bad choice. If you give them the full information, then they could make a full choice. 
So when you look at it, then has the Goswamis that have explained it, and you play it out, then it's a certain type of jiva. He's part of Mahavishnu's leela. Every manifestation of Bhagwan has some, some leela, is involved in leela, so here he is. This is his leela, these jivas, and, and part of that leela is they're being saved, the opportunity for them to be saved. So Mahavishnu, avatars, he descends into the world, and he sends the Vedas along with the world. And then these these souls get a chance to leave the, leave the world and, uh, and go to the Parvyam. And they get to make the choice to do so. They get to make the choice to do so. We're making the choice. We have the opportunity. We're choosing not to. You can say, well, we don't have, we don't have the uh, information, but you have it now. So, and it's always available in the world. When it gets around to your post office box, you know, then you have to deal with it, open it, and see if you want to, you know, take it up and so forth. So. It seems like we're really, in some ways, the only ones that have the opportunity to execute free will because in the spiritual world, they don't execute free will in one sense. And then, <laughs> you know, and so it's really just... Well, Bhakti is... Sanatana Goswami did say something like that in Bhagavatamrita. He glorified the Prahlad Maharaj. He said he glorified the Sadakas because their Bhakti's been tested and the Nityasiddha's Bhakti has never been tested. But... It is an act of, of will. We are a unit of will, for example. Just a unit of will, a unit of giving. And so they are, the Nityasiddhas are fully giving themselves to Krishna. It's not that they're not giving themselves. They're, they're giving themselves over entirely. But they don't, I suppose you can say, have the choice to make. So we are a unique category, and uh, that's what we are. So we have that opportunity. Yes? Question: Could some of the uh, the necessity of bhakti have been created by the predominance in the Western world, which he wanted to reach? I, that's what I yeah, of, I yeah I believe that yeah Christian yeah yeah because in Europe and England the first wave of information about Vedanta about Hinduism left Europeans and is still strongly ingrained in European Western North American people that Hinduism is fatalistic. The whole concept of karma is fatalistic and uh, there's there's no free will and this is its its uh, fault and so forth. And if you really study it's that's it's not the case. And so he I believe kind of factored that in in that way as to, to a deal with that type of audience. You see, the thing is this. The problem is where you are. If you're here in the material world and you're really wrapped up in it and you're thinking about this problem, there'll be a fault that you perceive if you understand that, well, that's just the way it is. Some souls are in the spiritual world and some souls are come from Mahavishnu and they're in the material world and they've got to suffer, you're going to start thinking, this is unfair, what kind of God is that? As you move in the other direction, towards liberation, towards Prem, then you'll think, what kind of God is that? That if I was with him, I could leave. That's impossible. How could I possibly? He's all attractive. I, I, I could, how could anyone possibly think that they, they could leave him? It becomes a problem on on that side to think of it in that way, you see. And that's the reality. This is the illusion down here. Do you understand? The more you go on that side, the more you see the problem 
in saying that the, the, the jiva has fallen. You, over here you think, okay, somehow it's my fault. You know, you can't quite figure out how, but it's my fault. Okay, I'll, they say it's my fault, but well, I don't know. Is it my fault? I didn't do anything, you know, and so on. So there's some blame of God. As you get closer to God, you see, there's, 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 there's no possibility. So then you can't possibly think that geez, souls could have left Krishna in any capacity to two of you. The more you're on, then this is the conditioned side. That's the enlightened side <laughs> over there. So, big topic, but yeah. This is uh, related because from listening to you for however long it's been, um, yeah, um, mm-hmm. I've come to understand, you know, seeing Prabhupada on the basis of Siddhanta preaching Baba, different mm-hmm. kind of ways of understanding why he's saying things. And of those three, the hardest for devotees that I've shared this with is the idea of preaching being different than Siddhanta. Like, we told that to Rinan and he was like, well, he couldn't deal with that. And uh, Giriraj Maharaj told that to Prabhupada in relation to Bhakti Siddhanta, you know, preaching is different than Siddhanta. And according, uh, it was my conversation, it was Archana's conversation. He, Prabhupada said to him, my Guru Maharaj would never cheat me. Because that's the thing, when devotees hear that... Well, I'll tell you what Prabhupada said, by hook or by crook, sell a book. Now, you tell me if that is Siddhanta or if that's some kind of preaching technique. Prabhupada would say, just tell your, just tell the child, oh, close your eyes and I'll give you a Golubjaman. Right? Prabhupada used to say this. I think you, you must have all heard him give this example. And then the mother would put the medicine in the mouth. Now, is the mother cheating? He would say, no, because the child wouldn't take the medicine otherwise, so she has to do that to give the medicine. So it's unavoidable to preach effectively, to not nuance the truth, so to speak, and tell a white lie or something, or you can only tell so much. If you're not telling the whole thing, you're holding back, and people may say, he said this, he said this, but he hasn't told the whole thing, this is why he said So Prabhupada very much did that all the time in his preaching. And Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasthi Thakur did it also. But what about once you have, you know, devotees? Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasthi Thakur's disciples used to go out and say, in the beginning, the very, very beginning of the mission, they'd go out and beg to get the mission going, and they would tell people, our Gurudev lives in Mayapur, he only eats Tulsi leaves on Ikadasi. Please give a donation, we're serving him. It just wasn't true. That's all he ate was Tulsi leaves on Ikadasi. <laughs> he never ate anything else throughout the month. This was the, they used to exaggerate and so forth for preaching. But that's different than once you have surrendered devotees who oh, well. completely accept whatever. I guess that's the point is that for preaching, yeah, we to get people on board would say anything practically. I mean, unfortunately, some, some of the Well, for what you may think is preaching to a new person, you probably might have thought you were a new person too from his perspective as to where you had to go and what you needed to hear. So, you know, Prabhupada's main idea was keep the thing going here. Let's not get caught up in... in he, he was like that. He would just, you know, okay, if you want to think of it, you know, science and, and uh, the Vedic cosmology are problematic, then and look at it metaphorically. Let's just go on with it, okay? He wrote that to Krishna Das. And it's not so important. Anyway, the scientists may not be entirely right either. Who knows? So, anyway, we know that Krishna's God, right? right. Okay, something like that. So he was very much like that. Um, and he wasn't taking the time in many respects to sit down and detail, discuss detailed aspects 
of the philosophy. He had a big, big outreach agenda that didn't lend as readily to that. So that's work he left to be done for others. That's his kindness. He left some service for others. You have to bring Prabhupada in harmony with the whole Sampradaya and the whole the teaching of the Goswamis. That's the bedrock, you know. That's where he said himself he drew his credibility from representing them. Yes. So to kind of segue that, you just mentioned that sometimes you hold something back. Mm-hmm. So in relation to that, I, I, I read this morning and I wanted to try to understand it with your perspective. Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur explains that Sukadev Goswami held back from Maharaj Pariksit the fact that when Krishna went back to Vrindavan, after he was done killing all the demons, he went back and he took everybody there, was put in a spiritual airplane and ascended. But he did not, Vishwanath said, Pariksit did not reveal this. Sukadev. Sukadev did not reveal this to Pariksit. And I didn't, I mean, I understood that he didn't, he didn't want him to feel discouraged that Krishna didn't take his family and put them in an airplane. So, in holding back, I didn't understand that, because Sukadev's already explained the, the intimacy through Uddhava of the, of the position of the Vrijabhasis. Mm-hmm. I mean, you'd think that, that Mars Pariksit knows that they're on a different level than his family members. Mm-hmm. So why would that be a problem? For Pariksit Maharaj? Yeah, to under, to comp, to, that he'd hold back that mm-hmm. intimate detail. Well, uh, you know, Vishwanath Chakravati Thakur, for one thing, is, is trying to come up with some reasoning as to why that Leela is not played out and broadcast, and it's a secret right. drawn from the text. And they'll show other ways in which Vishwanath or Jiva Goswami, Sanat Goswami, they substantiate that. That Krishna went back to Mathura, he killed Dantavakra, at that time he was near Mathura. Padma Purana says he crossed over the Jamuna, he went back, and and so forth. And it's just hinted at in the Bhagavatam. It's not brought out. So they, they, they're giving different reasonings and so forth as to, to how to substantiate that, that. The fact yeah. that it wasn't brought out. The fact that it had happened, but it wasn't brought out, right? The fact that it had happened, which isn't clear in the, from the Bhagavatam, just on its surface. But the Goswamis, you see, they read it, and they read the Bhagavatam, and they, they're contemplating the Leela, and they're thinking very wisely, how could Krishna stay away from the Brajapat? Doesn't this thing end? They're, they're looking at the whole thing. You read it, you don't get it, but they're reading the whole thing, and they're waiting, when's he going to come back? When's he going to come back? You know? Most of what he's reading, he leaves the bridge, he goes to Matura, okay, he's in Matura now. He's going to Dwarka, he's going to Dwarka now, okay. You know, what's next, you know? And, and, and then the Leela's going to end, and okay, it ended like this, and and then they have no thought about, what about these Brajabhasis that are crying and weeping, and they're, they're, the whole leaving of the bridge, apparent leaving of the bridge, the whole Matura Leela, the Dwarka Leela, is meant to reflect back on the bridge Leela and give emphasis to it and showcase those devotees love, but most people read, they don't even put it together, they never, they never even feel it. The Goswamis are reading and feeling it. When, when's he coming? They're there. When's he coming back? When's he coming back? The book's ending, he didn't come back. He has to have come back. Look closely at the text, and they show, he's come back. Here it says this, see, this indicates that, and this is their bhava, and, uh, and their reality. 
and so they're they're finding ways and means to. So it's kind of an ecstatic way of of talking about it, and you can bear down with your, with regard to Parikshit Maharshi with your reasoning about it and say, I don't know, it's maybe not the best argument, Vishwanath. You know, he said, well, then try this one, you know, or try that one. It didn't happen, believe me, you know. Uh, that's kind of the, the, the spirit of all of those arguments, similar with the argument that Krishna is actually born from Yashoda, and he's actually the son of Yashoda, not the son of Devaki. And even in one of his purports, Prabhupada says, and Vishwanath has given some more or less, you know, material arguments, you know, like the umbilical cord was, you know, had to be cut and, and, and so forth. But anyway, you know, Yashoda loves him more, so she's the, you know, he's the son of Yashoda. This is the real idea. So that's kind of the creative intelligence and, and genius of the of the ecstasy-driven, you know, realization about how the Leela has to work. And if you if you see their conclusion, you go, yeah, that, yeah of course, yeah, he has to come back. That's what the whole whole thing's about. You know, that's those are the those are the his dearest devotees and and so forth. But Parikshit Maharaj, uh, so he said that, huh? Yeah, I remember that, but he didn't want to tell Parikshit Maharaj because he'd feel a little jealous that he didn't... Yeah, I felt that that was a little... Not the strongest argument. How could Parikshit feel jealous? And he's also a devotee, and he has... And he, he thought, well, what about the Pandavas? They didn't get to go. My family didn't get to go. But again, previously, as I mentioned the other night in the fifth canto, he did play on that the other way around and say, your family was very dear. Don't think that Rishavdev's position is great. Look at your your position. So it's a kind of reversal of, of, of that uh, on the part of Sukadev, I guess. Uh, having said that, we could say in the fifth canto, your position is you're very dear. And also... The fact is that despite the ontological or objective, I should say the objective reality of the Brajbasis exemplifying the highest love, each devotee thinks his own love is the highest and is the best. And so uh, there's some place for that in their own, preserving their own bhava and their own feeling. So the spiritual master man give them encouragement you're fine. Where you, yeah, exactly. Fine. Yeah, yeah. They're they're the bridge of bosses. They're yeah. They're there, but you're fine. You're, yeah, you're, yeah. Yes. You know, and there's a there's there's a time when you can in any bhava you can think back objectively and go yes the gopi's love is the highest and yeah and so forth and there's a time where you you're not going to be able to listen to that and you know people will read the bhagavatam and gravitate towards the level of you know, the message that speaks to them and corresponding with their ultimate reality and there's some scope for then ministering to them about that. There's a story of Radhanath Maharaj's biography where he says that he was in in India and uh, he was uh, with some devotees, Ram Bhaktas, and they were reading maybe Ramayana or something like that every day and then after that was done he'd ask, what it was about, what the reading was about, because he didn't speak Hindi. And they would say, what, something like... The one pastime that they knew of Krishna. Yeah, they would just say one pastime about Krishna. And he kept wondering, they're reading about Rama, they keep telling me every day it's just something about Krishna. And so then he complains, he says, no, what are you, what's really reading? And then somebody said, well, we know that you're a Krishna bhakta, so we don't tell you about what we're talking about, because it won't, doesn't really pertain to you. We want to tell you something that's in your interest, something like that. So... 
this one story. <laughs> we only know this one story about Krishna. You're a Krishna devotee, so... <laughs> That's a bit extreme, but... So, to help Parikshit Maharaj cultivate his own affinity and think yours is the highest, there's something for that. This is your aspiration. This is the best best thing. There's some scope for that. That's why in the end, then, what is favorable association also starts to take on another meaning. And the Madhurya Bhaktas, they'll want to They'll be happy hearing all those pastimes from that perspective, from others who have that perspective. Those who have Vatsalya Baba, they'll have, they want to be in that section and, and so forth. Yeah. So, one thing that I'd like to know is the residence of Aikunta. Of course, I understand the concept of being satisfied in your relationship. You would think that nothing's lacking in the spiritual world, so that they would also hear the pastimes of Braj, Leela. What if their heart's attracted to that from hearing? But their situation, you know, can they move? Generally, they don't move, but they think that Krishna is the eighth incarnation of of, of Narayan, of Vishnu. That's what they think in Vaikuntha. Krishna says in the Gita, Avajananti Mamudha, Manusim Tanim Ashritam, Param Bhavam Ajananto Mahishparam. Ninth chapter. He says, Fools deride me or neglect me when I appear in my human like form, not knowing my su- supreme position, presiding over all, Mamabhuta Maheshparam. Vishwan Chakvati says, Krishna speaking about people who think that Krishna is the incarnation of Vishnu, they are mudhas, they are foolish. So, in effect, he doesn't play it out as I'm going to hear, but he, he's saying that people in Vaikuntha are a little foolish. They have a kind of ignorance. There's a kind of ignorance in Vaikuntha, just like there's an ignorance in Goloka. They don't know that Krishna is God. So in Vaikuntha, they don't know he's God either. They, 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 know, they more know that he's God than they do in, Vaikuntha, in Goloka, I guess you could say, but they've got him placed as the avatar Vishnu, and that's their perspective, and that fosters their bhava and so forth. And so there's an aspect of, of Narayan. Narayan sometimes will show the form of Gopal Krishna and some Leela. It's not the same as the Braj Leela, but it's similar, and that, that's their... That's why Gopakumar was right. satisfied. Exactly. So that's their perspective in Vaikuntha. That's how they see it. And... Um, they don't have any place for seeing it otherwise, so they don't they don't know about Goloka. Therefore, Aham Bhaja Sheta Dvipam Tamaham Goloka Mitiyam, Brahma says, it's known by very few people. It's called Sheta Dvip, otherwise called Goloka, and very few people know about this. So, that's, yeah, you don't want to unsettle the Ramanujas too much, you know, there's a place for that. Or the Madhvas, who, who see Krishna as an incarnation of the Ryan. It's a perspective. Objectively speaking, it's not the whole picture, but objective, the objective reality is not the ultimate reality necessarily for the devotee. It's a subjective reality of their particular love for Krishna. Well, was when Gopakumara was in Vaikuntha, he was. I mean, you can argue, you could, you, excuse me, but you could argue that the whole Goswamis is just a perspective, it's just a subjective perspective. That the Madhurya Ras is the highest. I mean, they give objective arguments and so forth and so on. But somebody in Bhava, another Bhav, could make arguments pretty strong mm-hmm. to the contrary. 
that's the force of bhavan and in a way it causes you to interpret the texts and so forth. And so Ramanuja is there and says, you know, they never be converted. You can find the same verses that devotees quote in Madhurya Ras in support of their the idea that Madhurya Ras is the highest reach. We'll quote the same verses and use them in a different way to say, for example, Sakyaras with high seat said right here, saying right here. So their Bhava calls them to read in there and find some of the, and then there's a there's an intelligence that comes from that that justifies it and they're Siddhanta and they can demonstrate it. So the other guy can do the same thing too from his perspective. So but they will not respect, they generally will not clash. They should not clash with each other. Right. There's differences based on anartha and there's differences based on rasa. The latter, those are desirable. If people are actually tasting that, then there won't be the kind of clashes that are based on anartha or based on merely intellectual understanding of a thing that causes people to fight over it, you know. My rasa is better than your rasa. There's things you've got no rasa. <laughs> then. So that's why the gopis can say, Right. Exactly. Yes. I was just wondering why is there the dissolution besides maybe everybody needs a break? <laughs> <laughs> but I just I just really wonder Ryan would have had, Vishnu needs a break. He needs a break from the world of people who aren't just interested in him. There he's manifest the whole world out of joy and and all the jivas are there and he sends his avatars and so forth and and he's just, they're putting him to sleep. The whole thing's putting him to sleep. And so he says, enough of this. This has turned out to be a nightmare. My dreams turned out to be a nightmare. They're not interested in me at all. And it's a fact. So he's depicted as sleeping. Krishna's not depicted as that because everybody's interested in him. And brother, so he's alive 24 hours. He's you know, appears to go to bed at night because it'll please Mother Yasoda, but actually he gets up and goes out the window because it'll please the gopis and... You know, he's 24-7 available. Mahavishnu is mostly, like half the time, he's asleep. <laughs> so, so, if you study like that, Brihad Bhagavatam, to see the different manifestations of divinity, you can really see clearly it's a wonderful kind of explanation of the Bhagavatam. The measure, the extent to which there's reciprocity between the devotees and, and that manifestation of God, it is the whole way that the Goswamis have analyzed to come to the conclusion that Krishna is the highest, because for it's more intimacy. You get into his heart, you know, you're like touching a vein there. He's, he's got to pay attention. That's why that aspiration for Rag Bhakti is so powerful, because you're aspiring to, to be involved in, in Krishna's own, per, what's, what's of interest to Krishna. We think, well, Krishna's interested in us, he wants to save us, and so forth. That's really not what he's interested in, you know. That's why that's Chaitanya, even Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, that's a secondary aspect of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Even the distributing of rag bhakti is a secondary aspect of Chaitanya. The internal reason of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is Krishna searching himself out, wondering about Radha's love. They're connected, but that, that, that's what he's all about. So when you're interested in what he's all about, that's like... Just think about it, you know, you know all kinds of people, all kinds of people know you, and some people know what really makes you tick, and those are the people you're going to, you know, spend more time with and, and give more attention to. And if you find somebody becomes interested in how you really feel, right, then you're going to open yourself up to them.
most people don't. They could care less, and you know it. I mean, you know, hello, how are you doing? Nice to see you. You know, see you later. You know, whatever. <laughs> you know, I did that. You know, but then some people want to really know what you're like, what you feel. You know, like you were telling me, you're with that guru at the one in Joppa retreat, and he was driving you in the car, and he was. He had absolutely no interest in what you were about. There was no edge in the conversation where he asked, so how are you feeling? You know, it's okay, you know. <laughs> I mean, he had interesting things to say that he was interested in and so forth, but doesn't endear you that much. <laughs> so the same thing, it's the same principle. Therefore, the aspiration for Rag Bhakti, which we want to instill in people from the start appropriately, but that has great power. That's why the most central thing Rag Bhakti is that aspiration, and then chanting is meant to foster that, and hearing another thing, and smarnam and even they're like fostering that that aspiration. So to, to hold on to that, to think I want Krishna and Krishna Loka, and uh, I, I want to love Krishna like the people who really love Krishna. I want to be like that. That's going to draw Krishna's attention to you. Wow, how audacious you think you like that? You know how. And that's what he tells the gopis at Kurukshetra. Yeah, you know, people worship me for liberation. I give it to them, you know. They want other things, I give it to them. This is what I have to deal with, you know. I'm out here, look, I'm sorry I'm not with you. All these people bugging me, you know. They all want my attention for some. They all, and I, you know, I'm God, I have to give it to them and so forth. But you should know, I'm actually purchased by you. That doesn't really interest me. Even though it appears that I'm busy with them, I'm thinking of you constantly. And he gives his heart and his pledge to her there. She gets some solace and returns to Vrindavan, knowing you know that he hasn't really gone. He's never really left Vrindavan. This is where he really is. This is the full manifestation of Bhagavan here. That's the idea. So to become interested in that, that's like very powerful. That uh, draws Krishna's attention. Now, you have to be interested in such a way that it's, that it's real. And if the interest is genuine, then you're going to take the steps that are necessary to go there. You're going to give up things that are unfavorable to that bhakti, accept things that are, and so forth, and do the homework, so to speak. Plant the seed and water the tree in order to get the fruit. You know, you want the fruit. Why would you take the trouble to plant the tree? And so, but some people want the fruit, and they just go buy it at the store, you know. They don't get as good of a fruit as if you plant the tree and you grow it yourself and... Probably just a good example. A lady wants a child, but you know she has to wait nine months. So there's some labor to go through. In other words, I got to go through labor to have a child. The fruit of the womb. <laughs> the fruit of the womb. Fruit of the womb. Fruit of the womb. <laughs> fruit of the womb is labor. You know, it requires some labor. So it's that kind of a combination. You do want that aspiration, and and that's the motivating kind of factor. And then if you genuinely want it, you find out how to get it. I want to go to India. Okay, great. Well, is this, is this going to be a fantasy, or do you really want to go? One guy really wants to go, and he's always looking at the travel logs, and the other guy's out getting a job. Because he, wants, he knows it's, I want to go, and I'm going to, it's going to take money, and, I'm, and that guy actually goes. He gets dysentery, and the other guy never, you know, really goes to India. So, something like that. High aspirations. Yeah. I was thinking along those lines, you know, the heart of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and the secondary thing he's preaching. So the although Prabhupada's famous for preaching, his heart really was Vrindavan. But 
we take it that oh, the thing is preaching and doing all, but without understanding that that's meant to give us that inner experience by the pre not that it's an end in itself. I know that's something that you talked about a lot, but just put it in a little different. You're kind of comparing it to Lord Chaitanya. So Prabhupada's heart was he was absorbed in Krishna consciousness and his own relationship, but yet he was empowered <coughs> to preach and make the teachings available. But then copying him, well, we want to do this big outreach, and then... Well, you have to copy him in terms of, as we began this morning with the prayer, he wanted to preach, but he had a purpose in the preaching, too. He wanted love of God as he, you know, played it out there. He wanted to join Krishna in his coward Leela after finishing his work, and so the two things go together. Myself, personally, I never, ever, and I did a lot of preaching. I mean, I still do some preaching, but I did a lot of preaching in Iskand, and I never for a minute thought that the goal here is preaching. The goal is love of God. There's a result from the preaching. There's an internal result that we're expecting. And I had these guys who were, you know, selling books along with and one guy. I had to tell him. I said, "Look, there's no book distribution in Goloka Vrindavan," and he was offended by that. He said, "What are you talking about? There's no book distribution in Goloka." I said, "Yeah, you know, you got to read these books too. You know, there's no airports up there. You know, I mean, there there are maybe, but they're you know." In Vaikuntha, there are airports, but not, uh, you know, not in Goloka. And uh, no, they're not up there selling books. That's not our goal, you know. This is, there's supposed to be a result of this. This is Cheta Dharpana Marjanam. This is for purifying the heart here. And this is the Yuga Dharma aspect of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu outreach. And, and you know, this ultimately it's, it's outreach for Rag Bhakti. That's the idea, to give people the opportunity for that speciality of this Yuga and so on. Yeah, yeah, I never had a problem with that, but some people have had have had a problem with that, and they lose sight of the of the goal, and then it, that can foster a kind of sectarianism, and, a, and whoever sells the most books is, you know, what I don't know, going to have the you know a new book bag in Goloka or something. I, <laughs> that was a means to Prabhupada that he fostered that. Right. Right. At that point in time, probably you know for that. Yeah, he wanted us to do that, and we did that, and it was good. <laughs> good for me, and many others too. So, what else? What time is it now? A little after twelve. Okay.